0: and we're back what's up everybody we've got another wonderful episode of wildlife cake cocktails coming at you we're uh once again up at uh, north of brisbane with the Wildlife Queensland, uh, Wildlife Preservation Society of Queensland Brisbane branch for their uh, is it April now? It's May. 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 The end of, end wow. of May. End of May. Wow, how things fly! So we're um, up here for their May presentation, and uh, again. Uh, not allowed to bring alcohol, but we do have some wonderful uh, virgin cosmopolitans here. Um, and we're going to be talking bats with uh, Professor Stuart Parsons. He's the uh, head of the Earth, Environment and Biological Sciences School at the Science and Engineering Facility of the Queensland University of Technology. Um, after a PhD in 1996 at the University of Otago, he moved on to numerous positions, including a postdoc fellow at the University of Bristol and as a senior tutor. And then on to an associate professorship at the University of Auckland and on to his professorship at QUT in 2014. His research area is largely in sensory ecology and animal behavior, ranging from auditory anatomy, biological sonar, mating systems, and much more, with a focus on bioacoustics. So, of course, much of his work is uh, in bats, but also with insects, birds, and whales, with a strong uh, applied research focus using acoustic and quantitative methods for direction uh, detection Uh, classification uh, of uh, uh, vocalizing animals and uh, he has multiple international research collaborations uh, including in uh, Europe, Australia, Central America, South Africa, Taiwan, China and Thailand. He's here tonight as the guest speaker for the uh, Wildlife Preservation Society of Queensland Brisbane Branch's 2019 presentation Bats from Myth to Majesty. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter at walking bats and the lab at walkingbats.com and you can check out the society on facebook at wildlife queensland brisbane branch or on twitter at wildlife queensland or go to wildlife.org.au Ah, long
1: intro. Stuart, how are you doing? I'm good. See what happens when you ask an academic what they do, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with a 20-minute introduction.
0: Yeah, and, and that's also what happens when I don't print out my forms and I'm trying to read everything off a tiny little phone. Um, how's your how's your drive-in anyway? We're really looking forward to hearing uh, some more bat stuff from you as well.
1: Yeah, no, it's a lovely drive-in. I live on the south side in the southeast, so it's a pretty easy drive to get up here.
0: Yeah, it was pretty hectic for us. We're scrambling to make it here on time, but we ended up getting here a little early. So um, yeah, very happy to uh, have a bit of a chat about BATS. Now, um, I guess, how did you uh, Uh, initially get interested in them? For uh, some of the people that we speak to with bats it's because they're uh, an amazing flying animal but uh, I guess you're coming more from the echolocation perspective.
1: Yeah so I I did an undergraduate degree um, in parasitology. So I used used to work in farm deer and looking at parasite immunology and I started off doing that and um, when I was thinking about doing a PhD I was wandering around my department talking to different staff members um, about Things that I might be interested in and I ran into a guy, Professor Steve Dawson, who worked on dolphins and dolphin sonar. And he said, well, no one's ever really worked on bats in New Zealand and particularly about biological sonar. How does that sound? And I thought, well, I'll get to go to some pretty amazing places. I'll get to do some, you know, neat science. And so off I went and started studying bats and it's all history from there. So off
0: from deer parasitology into Bats. was there much of a parasitology crossover or did you go straight into sonar
1: absolutely none no i started <laughs> from the ground up
0: uh, that's fascinating um and uh, as i understand bats in new zealand are also uh fairly uh different from what we have here in australia but also uh rather strange
1: yeah so one of them is very similar to a couple of species here in australia the calenolobus group but one of the mysticina is it's got a number of unique features so they're highly terrestrial they spend a lot of time running around on the ground and eating food that's on the ground um they're Evolutionary origins, they're quite distinct from a lot of other species of bat, and they were isolated in New Zealand for at least 20 million years. So they adopted this niche of being the terrestrial insectivore, mammal ter- terrestrial insectivore that New Zealand never had.
0: Basically kind of like a, a shrew. Or it's exactly,
1: like yeah. So they, they occupy that niche of the shrew. New Zealand has no native land mammals or land breeding mammals except for bats. And so that opportunity on the ground was there for them, and they took it.
0: So that's the lesser short-tailed bat, Mr. Sina Tuberculata. Um, and I understand it uses its folded forewings as kind of uh, crawling limbs?
1: Yep, yep. So it it's tucks up its wings nice and tight. It's a little pocket or a little pouch on the side, and it tucks its wings into that. And then it runs on its wrists, and it, it, it moves along across the ground, and it can climb trees. It does a lot of, lot of work on the ground.
0: So it really has a, an actual pocket that it's...
1: It's like a little fold in the skin that it can tuck them into to help it to walk. Wow, that is and uh, to, fascinating. It, to protect the wings as well. It's got very stout little hind legs um, that helps it to move along. And it's got a few other adaptations to the New Zealand environment.
0: Incredible. Um, and I understand that there... Um, uh, was there another species within that genus as
1: well? There was. there was. It's interesting. As people have looked more and more at the fossil record in New Zealand, they're cropping up everywhere. Yeah, right. So I think... In terms of species that have been around in our lifetime, it's two. Um, One, the greater short-tailed bat was known to be on a place called Big South Cape Island and ship rats invaded onto the island from a shipwreck and the the story is that it wiped them out yeah um, and wiped out a lot of the native biota on that island
0: and invasive rats have actually been pretty bad all over new zealand for they a have of- they have
1: been they have been they've done a lot of damage but there's also a number of um, other dangerous ones feral cats and domestic cats mustelids as well so ferrets weasels and stoats have done a lot of damage and they were brought in by the early European settlers to set up fur trades and different things, and they've just endlessly damaged the environment. The beautiful Australian brush-tailed possum is also probably not the most popular animal in New Zealand as yeah, well. Yeah, it
0: does a huge amount of foliage damage, particularly in the uh, densities that it, it reaches over there, uh, particularly with no, um, I, I suppose, large pythons and predators that we have uh, like here in no. Queensland. Yeah.
1: No, there's the odd bird of prey, um, but I'm not sure that they're really taking them directly. They're probably feeding more on roadkill and carcasses. Right, right. Right. Um, I I, I just want to know out of curiosity, uh, is there any other terrestrial bats around the world? Yeah, there are actually. There's a few of them. The most uh, well-known is actually the common vampire bat. So vampire bats spend a lot of their time running around on the ground. They're actually better, more agile runners than uh, Mr. Cena is. And the reason they do that is they'll they'll fly around quite happily, but then they'll land and they'll walk up to their prey item. So usually that's a domestic animal, a goat, a sheep, a cow, and then they actually jump up onto its back. So a vampire bat can jump about a metre and a half into the air from a standing start. Wow. And then they'll get onto the rump of a cow or something like that, and they'll um, take a little bite. Usually a dominant male will do that. They'll lap up the blood with their tongue, and then the rest of the family group of that male will come in and feed. Do they use their wings in that initial leap? They use their arms to do it. Um, If you look at the way that they run, they fold up their wings in a different way to Mr. Cena, And the way they run is what we call a reverse gallop. So normally in a gallop, they'll catch on their uh, front and then push off their back. They actually do a little bit of a reverse. The, the best analogy is trying to run on crutches. And the forelimbs are the crutch, and they'll lever themselves forward right. as they go through.
0: Having spent a bit of time on crutches, I, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, They're better at it than we are. <laughs> I hope so. I did not have much success. Um, so bats in general, um, around the world, super interesting. There's like uh, around 900 species worldwide, 90 species here in Australia. How many
1: of them um, use echolocation? The majority of them use echolocation. So the fruit bats or flying foxes are the ones that traditionally have not been considered to use echolocation, but the more we've studied them, more and more species have actually been shown to use echolocation, but they do it in a different way. So your traditional echolocating bat will produce the sound from their voice box, from their larynx, just like we would. fruit bat or a flying fox will produce it actually from their tongue. They'll click their tongue. Wow. And that's been thought to be quite a crude form of echolocation because it's a very long signal. can't be produced very rapidly. But the more we study it, the more we realize actually it's quite a sophisticated mechanism that they have. I understand uh, humans are uh, capable of that as well. Yeah, there's been a few studies that have looked at that. I mean, I'm a scientist. I'm naturally skeptical about everything. Um, And the ability of a person to click Rapidly enough hear the echo from around them with our hearing thresholds. I was initially I, I was skeptical about it But I've actually seen some demonstrations of it and you know the people I've seen people riding mountain bikes down a road Clicking and these people are blind. They're 100% blind. Wow, and they can do it. Yeah. So there's there's something to it Yeah, well, wow.
0: and obviously it's not a it's not a conscious thing. We, I, I, we should I guess explain echolocation really quickly um, so uh, let's say um, you know, you can estimate distance Uh, by making a sound uh, by the time between a call and the detection of an echo. So if sound travels at 340 meters a second, faster in water, obviously, um, if you make a sound and then you hear the echo uh, in two milliseconds, the object is around 34 centimeters away. Um, That's obviously super costly for computation. Um, And I suppose the bats
1: have a lot of work to do there, figuring that out. Their brain is exquisite. The way that it processes the sound, and it's probably one of the best understood auditory systems of any animal, including humans. So some bats have got really really sophisticated echo processing. Horseshoe bats can actually pick up wingbeats. Wow. So they can count the wing beats and the time between wingbeats in an insect and they can use that to work out what species it is. They can also use it to work out if it's a falling leaf or not and therefore not to attack it. Wow. And in fact insects have evolved uh, the ability to counter that when they hear an echolocation call they'll freeze and drop to the ground and the bat will think well you're obviously a falling leaf. Incredible. So there's a real evolutionary arms race between Insects and bats, that's the topic of a whole other podcast. You could go for hours.
0: Well, I I, I hope we get the chance to do it uh, at some point, because we're going to have to wrap up here and let you get to your talk. Um, So um, unfortunately, guys, that's uh, that's, uh, pretty much us for now. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Um, uh, And uh, I guess, uh, is there any, um, I guess, bat things that you can leave us with uh, before we go? Uh,
1: I'll leave you with one. Native rainforest will not regenerate without the presence of bats for seed dispersal. So take care of your bats. We need them. There we go. You heard it here. Um, That's Professor Stuart Parsons. You can follow him
0: on Twitter at WalkingBats, and you can check out the lab at WalkingBats.com. Uh, And don't forget to jump on Facebook and check out the Wildlife Queensland Brisbane branch. You can also check them out on Twitter at Wildlife Queensland or go to wildlife.org.au for more Wildlife Cake Cocktails. You can also follow and subscribe on Facebook and Instagram at Wildlife Cake Cocktails or go to Twitter, WCC underscore podcast. And you can check us out through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean and more. Let's get to this talk. All right, guys. Talk soon. Bye.
1: So would you please welcome Stuart Parsons? Thank you. Thank you. Everyone can hear me? All right, okay. If anything goes wrong, just wave at me. We'll wait for that to come up. Oh, we're in the wrong spot. All right, thank you very much for the introduction and the kind invitation to come and talk. Um, Nothing pleases me more than to come and talk to people about bats, uh, particularly that are receptive about bats. As was said in my introduction, I've actually done a lot of work um, around large infrastructure, and sometimes I'm talking to people that have a lesser appreciation for bats and the problems that they're causing for them. I'll never forget talking to an owner of an area. It was terrible land, uh, but it was going to be used for sand extraction to help build a motorway, and after 10 minutes with me, he looked at the person who had introduced us, and he said, Jerry, what have you done to me? And I thought, well, that's probably a pretty good sign, um, that we're there to advocate for the bats. so, what I'm gonna to do tonight is really try and sort of take you on a journey about bats, and to tell you a little bit about them more broadly. There's an awful lot of them in the world, and they do some pretty amazing things. And they get some bad press. Sometimes they deserve it, and other times they don't deserve it. So we'll look at a bit of a balance of that. They, they get blamed for a lot of diseases. And I have to say that in a lot of cases it's true that they carry these diseases, but they're not as prevalent or as dangerous what your risk of getting them is not what people would tell you about but we'll also talk about the great things that they do in the environment the things that they'll do for regenerating forest um, for pest control things they'll do for agriculture as well and save farmers an awful lot of money uh, particularly cotton and no wine and macadamias is there as well and then i'll finish off just by telling you a little bit about the work that we're doing at QUT in my lab um, around brisbane um, through Queensland and then around in the rest of the world. Um, I might not get to all of it. It can be a long talk. So if I see people starting to drift or even leave, um, I'll probably cut it a little bit short, but I'll keep, keep a bit of a close eye on the time. So what we're gonna do is, I've covered a lot of this, is really to talk about what amazing animals bats are and the diversity that we see and the things that they do for us. What are the threats to bats worldwide? They're actually very highly threatened. A large number of them are Um, threatened with extinction worldwide, and in particular zones, but one of the greatest problems is we know so little about them that we can't really determine the level of threat to them. We'll debunk some of the myths. Um, One of the ones I like to focus on is Ebola. Bats will always get the bad rap for Ebola, but we don't really know where Ebola comes from. Probably is bats, I have to admit, but no one's proven (laughs) it yet. Um, and then we'll cover off things. And all the way through it, I'll have some pictures of bats and things, just to give you an idea. This is a really neat bat from Thailand. This is a Hipposiderid bat. Um, and the, I caught this in a mist net. And I saw this color and I thought, this is it, I'm famous. I'm gonna finally get to name a bat after myself. I'd never seen anything this color. And then I realized what had actually happened was all of its roost mates had urinated on it. And it had actually just bleached from the, from the urine and things. So. I'm I'm still not famous, I still haven't managed to name an animal after myself, but it was an incredible color of this beautiful orange. Anyway, so there's lots of bats in the world. At the moment, there's about 1,300 species that have been described. Um, They cover a wide range of diets, so they can eat fruit, pollen, nectar, blood, flesh, insects. But each group of bats tends to eat, or each species, tends to focus on just one thing, So if you pick up something like uh, myotis in Australia, it tends to feed over water and take aquatic insects. If you look at a common vampire bat, and I'll show you some of those later, they drink blood, that's all they do. Um, You've got synopteryx here, um, which is a fruit bat, quite common in Southeast Asia, it only eats fruit. Now, with bats, there's always an exception. So Mysticina tuberculata in New Zealand, the lesser short-tailed bat eats fruit, pollen, nectar, and insects, but it's quite rare in that way. They tried to pin flesh-eating on it, um, but it was debunked a little while ago. But just to give you a little um, idea of some of the variety that we've got, as I said, Sinopteryx, this is a, a fruit bat in Southeast Asia, Um, It's probably about bodies about this big. It's a lovely little animal. Lives a lot in rural areas, feeds on uh, wild bananas, and it's very important for the spread of wild banana seed. This is a beautiful bat. This is the Honduran white bat, Ectophylla alba. Sort of the poster child of bats. Um, And these uh, live under the leaves in the um, jungle, and they nip off. They get these large palm leaves. They nip off the corners, and the leaf will fold down into a tent, and they'll go and form a little harem group underneath that. Mormopterus, this with the light isn't showing up very well. I love Mormopterus. I caught one in Belize about a month ago, and they are stunning animals. They're, I love all bats, and I think they all have an inner beauty. Um, it's a little like family members. You can see beauty in every one of them. Um, but Mormops, and another one that I'll show you a little bit later, challenges that beauty. I think the neat thing about it is it doesn't matter which way up you hold it, it looks the same. So if it's upside down and it keeps its mouth shut, it looks exactly the same. Tala nycteris, these are what are called bamboo bats. They live in the internodes of bamboo in Southeast Asia. So they nibble a little hole off and they go up inside the bamboo and they live in there. Noctilio albiventris. so this um, is a fish eating bat. So it lives offshore, it lives in sea caves and it actually goes out um, over the ocean and amongst the swells and it pulls fish this big out of the um, water with its feet. And you can see um, it pulling a smaller one there uh, but the wingspan of that bat is about this big, and it just eats fish. It's got feet about the size of my hand as well, and they're an absolutely beautiful animal. Um, here's some other ones. Um, Hypsignacus. So this is called the hammer-headed bat, and I have to say this is a boy, and the girls are not this ugly. Um, <laughs> so these are really interesting bats because they have a mating system known as lecking. And so what happens with lecking is males basically set up a display area that the females will pass through and they'll display to the females as they go through in the hopes of mating. And what these bats do to attract the females is they honk. And that's why they've got this big nose this is to help them produce this really deep resonating honking sound. Now the reason I think this is neat is I've spent 20 years working on Mysticina tuberculata in New Zealand and we've, what we've shown is it's the only other species out of the 1300 that also lex. It sings to females, though. It doesn't honk, so it's a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, this is another uh, shot of Mormops uh, more with its mouth open, so you get a bit of, of a better idea. Centurio, a face that only a mother would love. I've caught this one as well. Um, it looks like a bit like a Vogon, I think, from um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, <laughs> but quite neat. Uh, Kyriephron um, is, uh, Chapini, sort of named after Charlie Chaplin. It's got this amazing, little mane of hair over its head that it uses to attract females. Female um, Charyphoron really love it. Histiotus is another really interesting bat. You see these bats that have got really large ears. They still echolocate. They produce ultrasound out of their nose or their mouth and they listen for the echoes to come back. But these bats will actually shut off their sonar system because the prey that they're feeding on can hear them coming. And they have evolved the ability to hear them and to take evasive action. So what the bat does is it shuts it off, and it listens for the sound that the prey is making, and it will pounce on it. And if you ever get a chance to go back and watch Life of Mammals, there's some beautiful footage of a bat called Placotus, the long-eared bat, actually hovering in front of a leaf, and there's an insect on the leaf. And it's hovering in front of it, waiting for the insect to move. And it moves, and it just pounces on it, but the insect's on the other side of the leaf but the bat can't work that out. Um, But eventually it works out that it was in the wrong spot, goes around and eats the insect. So although um, this bat doesn't use echolocation, all of these ones do, um, even though they've got it, they're not always using it. Um, There's a really interesting um, area of bat research called the evolutionary arms race between insects and bats. So just briefly, bats echolocate and eat insects. Insects don't like that, so they have ears and they have evolved the ability, particularly moths, to hear bats coming. And what they will do is when they first hear a bat, they'll change direction, hoping that the bat will miss them. If the bat keeps getting closer and closer, they'll start to fly more erratically, they can do loops, and eventually, they'll get to a point where they'll drop, they'll freeze and drop to the ground, hoping that the bat will think that it's a leaf. Because um, bats can actually, some species, can count the wing beats of insects and work out what they are. And if they're toxic or um, edible, and so the, the moth's trying to, to do that. Um, there's a group of moths also that will actually, at the very last minute when death is imminent, they will shoot ultrasound back at the bat, and they will jam the, the neural mechanism for the sonar system. So the, the easiest way of describing this, well, first of all, it's very confusing for the bat because it doesn't know it's going to happen, but it's, about, it's sort of like biting into a steak, and just before you cut it, it moves at you. It's going to give you that, well, not your stake a chance to escape, but imagine if it could escape just that fraction of a second to be able to move out of the way and avoid capture. So there's a lot going on out there when you see the bats flying around trying to capture insects. What have we got here? There we go. So bats also do some pretty odd things. With 1,300 species and lots of different mating systems, this was just published um, by a chap, Yossi Uvel, an incredibly talented bat biologist out of Israel, Um, that basically males um, will try and gain favor with females by feeding them. And it seems to work, because if they do feed them, drop a little snack um, in front of them every once in a while, those females will prefer those males to mate with. I've already said that there's... I'm sure everyone's got a similar story about this. Um, Now, what I've done is this is actually what the... uh, This was in Current Biology, a a scientific journal. This is what the authors said, Um, and then Fox News picks it up and things this independent, which is a bit better, and then I, I don't actually go to Fox News, just saying. Um, but this one, when I was searching for this paper, this popped up and I thought I can't miss the opportunity to, to throw up their uh, interpretation of it all. As I said, Mr. Cena sings to females. Um, there's a, lots of other behaviors that bats do that's probably not for polite company, um, but they're, they're uh, interesting in how do they go about their mating sometimes. So what do bats do? They do an awful lot of things that are good. Um, And particularly, they're very, very important for what we call ecosystem services, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with. The principal ones that they're involved in is pollination and seed dispersal. And in Australia, we might think of that as the flying foxes doing that. But in Central and South America, there's a whole other group of bats which are called the New World fruit bats. Now they're different because they're echolocating and they're small, but they still feed on fruit and nectar. And so there's this whole group of bats around the world that are very, very important in pollinating, helping with pollination, but also in seed dispersal. Every item on here in, some, in different countries relies on bats for pollination. So you can see we've got bananas, there's durian in here. Um, what else have we got? I'm not good on my fruits at the moment. Um, there's some avocado in here, some peaches. I'm probably um, westernizing this. These are probably much more exotic um, Asian fruits, and I'm just calling them by, with my Australian lens on. But they do an awful lot of good um, within these. There's a vine in Central and South America called mucuna And it has actually evolved a sonar reflector to help guide the bats in. So they have a leaf on them or a petal that stays upright and there's a little platform. And as the bat flies past and it's echolocating, it gets this incredibly strong sonar return from the plant, but only from a very specific angle. It's almost like a navigation feature. And as it comes back, if it flies directly towards it, it keeps getting this sonar signal. So it's very, very obvious. It's like having fluorescent lights light up. Um, in the in the forest for you, and so they'll then land on this platform, drink some nectar, and the this top leaf will collapse on them and deposit some um, pollen on them, and then they'll fly off, and then they'll go to the next one. And that because that reflector has dropped, it means that it's no longer visible to the bats because it's been pollinated or transferred the pollen, so that it doesn't waste any extra energy. So there's a large number of adaptations out in the environment, out in the wild, that really do indicate the close relationship that bats have with the pollinators and the, the things and the things that they do seed dispersal for um, here's some um, other examples as well um, Patron, and everybody like a bit of tequila so the agave plant um, it got an interesting way of reproducing it doesn't actually need to be pollinated all the time but glossophagin bats are the sole pollinators of agave without them you have no tequila now if you don't like tequila, that's probably not a great loss. Uh, but there's a number, this is uh, the glossophagian bat coming into the flowers as well. Uh, but there's a number through Africa of, of, of trees that actually really rely on these bats. And they won't exist, these plants, if it wasn't for bat pollination. Oh, getting too far away. There we go. Have I gone too far? No. So one of the other things that bats do that is not that widely recognized besides the seed dispersal and the pollination, is they're really amazing at insect control. Uh, people would think, well, they're going to eat mosquitoes and midges, and that'll be really great. I'll put up some back boxes around my house, and I'll extend the summer, and I won't get bitten. And that might happen. But the great thing they do is they help agriculturalists. And they do this by eating pest species. So one of the great success stories is cotton bollworm. So this is a map that was produced quite a while ago, in about 2011. And these are the different counties in the United States, each little tiny square. And the depth of the red is the amount, the value that's returned to cotton farmers times 1,000 per county. So you can see here, we've got 50 to 73,000 times a 1,000 in terms of economic value to, the, to them, and this is per year. and so you can see that the annual value is about 3.7 to 53 billion dollars a year, just for the cotton industry. Now, even as an optimistic bat lover, that's quite a broad range of numbers, you know, about 47 billion dollars in there, uh, sorry, about 50 billion dollars. But even if it's 3.7 billion dollars, a benefit to a farmer or a cotton grower that pays nothing absolutely nothing for these bats, and they come in. And what they're doing is they're eating cotton bollworm. And the economic value the bats bring to the farmer is that they don't have to put as much pesticide and insecticide out. So they can go and look at the, these are particularly, um, the bollworm is eaten by Tadarida brasiliensis, the Mexican free-tailed bat or the Brazilian free-tailed bat. And they form some of the largest aggregations of, of animals on the planet, particularly of vertebrates. There's a cave in New Mexico, called Bracken Cave, and at peak times, there's 40 million of them in the cave at any one time. If you get a chance to go there, it is spectacular. It takes four hours for them to leave and four hours for them to come back. There's a lot of snakes there, though. Um, Bats, believe it or not, are not these amazing flying animals that never hit each other and crash. They hit each other and crash, and they hit the ground, and they're gone in seconds because of the snakes that are around there. There's lots of uh, notices around the path saying, don't leave the path. Um, So you can see here that this is what's, they're basically controlling this cotton bollworm for the farmers, and when there's lots of bats around, they can actually delay or not have one to two uh, additional pesticide or insecticide treatments over the cotton. And that saves them an enormous amount of money, and so that's where that uh, economic gain comes from. In Australia, it's the same. Um, So there's been research going on, this is by Rachel Long, Um, who's now working in California, but um, Heidi Kalkert um, is doing similar work right now. She's just writing up her PhD at the University of New England, and we have some funding recently from um, the cotton industry to look at biodiversity over cotton. But essentially what these um, studies have shown is there's about three or four really nasty insect pests of cotton, and the Australian species of bat that are flying over them are eating these insects. About 70% of their diet of some of the species is actually these pests, um, and so they're providing. It's been it's difficult to quantify, um, and Heidi is I hope going to do that very shortly. But soon we'll have some numbers on the actual economic benefit that bats provide, and this is without the farmers doing anything to modify the landscape to try and encourage the bats. It's just by luck, and one of the parts of the project that we have is to look at the landscape look at the indicator bats that are showing these services to cotton and to give them advice on how they would actually modify their landscape to encourage more of them to come in. Um, I don't know if any of you have been out recently into the cotton growing areas, particularly in northern New South Wales and out to the west. There's not a lot of features out there sometimes, just cotton monoculture. And so if we can get some native bush in there um, and some plantings that will help bats and help the farmers as well, then that's gonna be uh, an improvement for everybody. Um, This is a paper that's come out recently, um, and this is about macadamias in South Africa. Um, And so this is the common slit-faced bat, nyctiris, and it's actually, you can't really see it, but in its mouth is one of these, a green vegetable stink bug. And the green vegetable stink bug is a big pest of macadamias in South Africa. And so this study um, has had a look at, a guy Peter Taylor did it, um, had a look at the actual value that the bats are bringing to the macadamia orchardists. And you can see here that it's, they think it's worth about US $600 per hectare to them. Um, and if, the lot, if you took that out of the macadamia orchards, you can get between 70, to, sorry, nine to 23% increase in damage. So essentially, they're suppressing up to 23% of the damage that these insects could do. Again, the orchardists are not doing anything special. This is just by good luck that they're getting it there. So they think it's about saving up to about 1.3% of their annual production. Um, and they also did a really interesting experiment where they pre- prevented the bat control. So they excluded bats and birds from the macadamias to see what would happen. Um, and what they got was yield losses of up to 60%. So that it shows if you don't have the bats and the birds there, um, they haven't separated the data out, uh, essentially the farmers could have a 60% yield loss. So there's a real tangible benefit to macadamia lovers, but particularly to these farmers who are trying to make a living, and if they actually adapted some, in some way how they're actually growing and the landscape features around them to encourage the bats, they probably get a little bit of extra help as well. Um, this is a really interesting one. This is rice, um, and you can see this quote up here. Um, Any genuine improvement in the human condition on this planet must be concerned with rice, because rice is a staple diet for billions of people across the planet. So what do bats do for, um, for rice? So this is a study done in 2015 about the pest control service, services that were done by bats. And what you can see here is these bars represent increases in bat numbers. Okay, so we're going from 1999 through to 2008. And rice stems infested with insects, okay, with, particularly with rice borer, you can see them here decreasing. What this shows is simply the damage, the reduction in damage to the rice by the bats by eating these rice borers. And as you go through, as you increase the bat density, you can see that you're getting it very, very close to zero in terms of the number of rice stems that are infested. So that, you know, there's another example that I'll show you, but it's starting to build a picture that everywhere you look, where there's bats and there's some type of agriculture, that there's a positive impact of bats. Why? Because most of the pests of agriculture are insects. Bats like insects. Here's a great one. This is one I want to get into. Very little about being done in Australia about the wine industry and the positive effect that bats bring. Um, And I'd like to be right at the forefront of this. Um, This is happening in um, the Dordogne where wine growers are installing bat roosts. So these are bat boxes. Everyone's seen bat boxes? yeah? That you can put up. Um, And really what they're doing is putting those up to try and bring more bats into their... Uh, vineyards to provide insect pest control. I haven't heard yet about whether it was worthwhile, um, but to be honest, that's not gonna stop me. I'm already making friends with the wine industry. Or my here we go. Here's a really interesting one that just came out. I mean, this is a few weeks old. Um, And so what you've got here is, I'm pretty sure it's a white-tailed deer. And what is happening here This was on a camera trap, it was absolutely fortuitous that they caught this on a camera trap. This is a bat coming down and eating insects that are accumulating around this white-tailed deer. So things like horse flies and the like are quite a pest of wild deer and of farmed deer as well. And they actually then went in and quantified what was going on and what it showed was that these bats were actually coming in and they certainly weren't removing all of the insects from the deer. Um, or those that were bothering them but they reduced them significantly and this is quite rare um, in mammals i think there's two examples of what we this, call this mutualism where one mammal will actually help another mammal in terms of grooming as well when they're not related to one another um, obviously happens within species um, when you've got related individuals uh, and so this is really only the second example where bats are actually coming in. I mean, there's no economic benefit to any human in this, but obviously the deer will appreciate it. Um, so we're discovering more and more of these things, and you know, I think um, camera traps are really helping um, discover some quite interesting things that humans are just simply not there to see. Um, Ox peckers on um, cows and things and cleaner fish um, are also really classic examples of these mutualisms that exist. I keep walking away. There we go. So bioindicators. The other thing that bats can do, and it's been explored for a little while now, is become bioindicators. People know what a bioindicator is. So the analogy that's used is the canary in the coal mine. So picking up levels of toxic gas. Canaries are very, very sensitive to the toxic gases that build up in mines. And so the old miners would take them down. And my my grandfather was a a Welsh coal mining family. My great-grandfather was a pit overman in the South Wales Valley, so I got lots of stories about this. But they would take a canary down, and basically, if the canary cracked it, that was an indicator that the gas levels, dangerous gas levels were building up in the mine, and they would all get out. Because the canary was more sensitive than the humans were. And if they didn't have it, by the time they realized that the gas levels are too high, people would be dying. So the canary was a biological indicator of, of a problem in the environment that could then be used as a trigger. And bats have been used and are increasingly being used as bioindicators for the, the resilience or damage to the environment. The reason they can do this is because they have these key ecosystem services. So they're at a quite a high level, but they're dependent on things that are at lower levels, particularly insects. So if you have insects, let's say we're talking about water. And there's a pollutant that's gone into the water. It can take a bit of effort and a bit of money to do a lot of water testing. Or what other people do is they'll go and look at the insect communities. How have the insect communities changed in response to that, to a potential pollution source? Well, why do that when you can just go and measure the bats? They're much bigger. They're easier and take less skill, some would argue, to monitor than it does for insects. You can go out there and acoustically monitor them and see what they're doing. So if you see a change in the bat community over water, and I'll show you an example where we've done this in Southeast Queensland, that the activity levels of bats and the composition of bat communities reflects the quality of the water that's there. How do they do it? It's because of the insects. So they're an indirect indicator of stream health through their impact or their their feeding on um, insects. so really, the reason why they do this is they've got they eat a wide variety of things. They provide these really important services. Their their reliance on insects. Um, they can also be used as indicators for disease risk for humans. So if we start to see diseases coming into the bats, that can be an indicator that there's a risk to humans. And one of those is Nipah, um, which is in uh, usually in India, and it goes from bats or to uh, humans. Uh, either via trees and sap in trees um, or through pigs. And so you can use them as indicators that there may be a potential disease risk to humans and take take measures to try and prevent the disease transmission. So I'll give you an example here. This was a study that was done by a PhD student of mine when I was in Bristol many, many years ago. Um, Talk about resilience. She was working on looking at bat communities on organic and intensive farming systems to see if the back communities were different. And she had 26 paired farms in the southwest of England when foot and mouth broke out. And the first thing that happened was there was a ban on moving between farms. Now when you've got 26 paired farms as a part of your PhD and you can't move between them, that's a bit of a problem. But she got through it, Uh, they lifted the ban and she did an amazing job. This gives you an idea of some of the landscape um, in Berkshire and in Somerset. We were in Bristol, um, so Somerset, um, was a closer target for us. And what she did was she looked at the community structure of the bats and their relative activity level between the organic and the intensive farms to see if there was any difference between them. And this is these are the species of bat that she recorded. These are European species, so Ptiscus, some Myotis, Nyctalus, Pipistrelus, and Rhinolophus, down here. This, uh, sorry, the... Um, the uh, axis has fallen off this. This is a relative measure of bat activity. So it's a number of echolocation passes produced by bats. And what you can see is that some of them, the black bars are organic farms, and the gray bars are um, the conventional or intensive farms. And you can see that for a lot of these species, there's much higher levels of activity over these organic farms. Some of them doesn't appear to matter, All of these ones down here, these species, the rhinolophids, um, are only really found over the organic farms, but for the rest of them, it's pretty even. Um, The one thing you'll note is that there's no farm where they're only found in conventional or intensive farming. They're either in both or they're only in organic farms. So what's the reason for this? Essentially, then what she went and did a whole lot of work on insects and things, and the insect dry mass and the species' richness abundance is much higher on organic farms. And that's an indication that you've got a much healthier insect community over those organic farms. So of the 18 families of insects thought to be important to bat diet, five of them were higher on organic farms, and this is really linked to agrochemical use. So if we consider an environment where there's high agrochemical use as not being healthy or having some damage to it through the use of agrochemicals, the bats are clearly telling us about the health of that. So, we don't have to go out and measure the insects or anything else. We can simply look at these key bat species and ask, are their activity levels high enough to indicate the health of that ecosystem? So, those are some of the great things that bats do for us and how we can use them. But what are the threats that are out there for bats? And they are numerous. And I'll show you some of them. This is a study that came out um, a couple of, well, probably a couple of months ago. Winifred Frick, who's the chief scientist for Bat Conservation International, has been doing some fantastic work since she started there. And she's uh, working with Tigger Kingston, who's at Texas Tech University. And uh, Tigger is the head of the IUCN Coropter and Specialist Group. Um, so she sort of leads that IUCN specialist group for bats. And what they did, first of all, was they they looked at areas of high bat density. So this is the density of threatened species. So it's a heat diagram. So anything that's yellow shows really high densities. Anything that's blue, there's low densities. So this first one is showing threatened species. And what you can see here in the um, old world tropics um, is that there's this accumulation or this higher density of threatened species, um, particularly here in parts of Southeast Asia coming around. I've yet to ask them about New Zealand. There's a couple of blobs here that I'm not quite sure about. This is likely Big South Cape Island where um, the greater short-tailed bat was thought to go extinct in the 1960s. Um, Otherwise, it's more or less covering the country. There's one blob here for Australia, and it looks like it's sort of around Byron Bay. I have to go and query what what that one was, why there aren't more blobs in here. But also, we see here in the New World tropics um, where they are. Now, this is actually, if you looked simply at species diversity of bats, this is where you find them. So the Old World and the New World tropics is where you get the greatest abundance of species. So I do a lot of work in Belize, which is about here. Um, And so far we've caught 60-something species just at one field site. I was there a couple of weeks ago. We caught 38 in a week of quite different species. So it's a bit of a heaven, a bit of a haven for it. This shows data-deficient species. So these are based on the IUCN ranking of data-deficient, where we simply don't know enough about them to be able to rank their risk, whether they're critically endangered or... um, not vulnerable, or of least concern, I think, is the lowest one. And really, what you see is that it's centered around the tropics, across the globe. So even though here we don't think we have many species, we've got an awful lot of them in equatorial Africa that we simply have no idea about what their level of threat is. Worryingly, as we get into Central America and into Northern South America, um, where we've got the large number of threatened species, there's even more of them that we simply don't know anything about. Um, and same here as we move through PNG, Indonesia, and a little bit further northwards. So really what this tells us is that where we get the greatest number of species, we get the greatest number of threatened species, but we also have the greatest number of species that we have no idea what their threat level is. So these are obviously the ones that are threatened, but all of these, these could be threatened, they could be least concerned, we have no idea. Um, and you know bats can be a little bit challenging to work on. If you're going to developing countries, it can be even more challenging. In some countries, they rely on bats as a protein source. They're subsistence farmers, and without bats, there would be no protein for them to eat. So you can't really tell them not to eat them. Um, and so there's a lot of challenges about working in some of these areas. So this tells you the level of threat to the bat. So this graph shows you the proportion of species in each category. So these are all the IUCN. Um, This is basically extinct, um, data deficient, uh, critically endangered, endangered, vulnerable, um, near threatened, and least concern. And we've got birds here, other mammals, and bats. So the bats have been taken out from these mammal groups. And the thing to notice is that first of all, the large number of data deficient species compared to other mammals and birds. We just don't know that much about them. And that's highlighted in that last heat diagram I showed you. The other thing is that the the size of these bars, and if you look at all mammals in the world that we know enough about, and bats, there's only 1,300 species of bats. They're the second biggest group of mammals, after the rodents, so there's still a few of them. But they're almost, in terms of these categories, outside of least concern. They're almost the same threat levels in terms of a proportion of species as every other mammal on the planet that we have information for. And we all talk about birds and about how difficult it is for birds. Um, well, it's even more difficult for bats. Um, this is looking at um, the population uh, trends for bats as well. Um, and so we've got yellow where it's unknown, red decreasing, light blue stable, dark blue increasing. And you can see the difference here, there's birds, other mammals, and bats. Again, the take-home message is we have no idea about a vast number of them, whether they're going up or down. Um, If we look at uh, the proportion here in terms of decreasing, it's not too bad compared to other mammals and to birds, um, but stable is a, a smaller number, where we actually know those population numbers are stable. Um, in terms of, if we take this data and combine it with these red list ones, so data deficient, least concern, um, near threatened, I think it is, vulnerable, endangered, and critically endangered, um, and unknown, decreasing, stable, you can see that the least concern ones are the ones that tend, we don't, still don't have a lot of information about. Okay? And so we've also got these ones that are stable, but even some of the least concerns ones are still decreasing, um, where they're near-threatened, vulnerable, the good thing is we know a lot more about them. There's very few that are unknown that are in these critically endangered areas because the researchers and the conservationists focus so much energy on them. Um, the sad side of it is they're all still red. They're all still decreasing. So even though we're focusing a lot of energy on them, we know a lot about them, all of those numbers are still dropping. There's the odd one in here that's actually stable. So it doesn't paint a very good picture for bats, I mean, the really the big take home message from this is we need to know a lot more about them before we can properly assess their level of threat, but from what we know, it's quite difficult, um, and that they are under a lot of stress. If we think back to all of the great things they do for us, it sort of combines to make quite a sad picture uh, for the status of bats worldwide. So what causes these declines? Um, this is again from um, Winifred's paper, Um, which has looked at all of these. So this is the proportion of threatened species here and where the threat has been identified. So logging and harvesting of plants is the number one threat to bats. It's loss of habitat, not only for roosting. Bats rely on linear features to move through the environment. And so if you fragment areas, you isolate them to a particular position in the environment, and it stops gene flow and does all sorts of bad things for them. Agriculture. Um, as well, it's been identified, um, so this is outside of harvesting of plants and logging. Hunting and collecting, um, so this can be bushmeat. It can be trophy hunting, that tends not to be a big problem for bats, um, but certainly bushmeat is a big problem for bats, particularly in Southeast Asia. Human intrusions and disturbance, nice to see that we're having a direct impact as well as an indirect impact from our, um, our presence. Urban development, energy production and mining. People will tell you that wind energy is green and fantastic. It is, unless you're a bat. More bats are killed by wind energy facilities worldwide than any bird, um, and it can be up to a hundred times more bats are killed than any bird. Uh, they are a big problem for bats. Um, and when you combine that in North America with things like white-nose syndrome, which is fungus that's wiping out bats, particular species all across North America, you've got a really big problem on your hands. There's a risk um, that one particular species in North America will go extinct simply because of white-nose syndrome. And before that disease hit, it was the most common bat in North America. So natural systems modifications, invasive species. So a good example of this would be in New Zealand where you've got ferrets, stoats, weasels, um, rats, all been introduced by lovely people. Um, who have a good old time munching on bats. Pollution, transport and service corridors, um, cars and trucks do hit bats. Um, Geological events. I'll have to ask Fred about what that one was, but obviously some geological event wiped some bats out as well. I would suggest that it would be a volcanic eruption going down the side of a mountain um, that took out some roosts. Um, So we tend to play a bit of a role in this, sorry to draw on some Queensland politics, I'm not gonna get political about this. Um, But these are the types of things that we see coming through. So this is 2011, Um, bomb the bats, says the LNP. So to use smoke bombs and choppers to evict urban bats, uh, despite warning, it could lead to more hendra. Um, Good old Campbell Newman says that once bats have been moved on, the trees will be cut down, which I think was a defining feature of his premiership. Okay, I got a little bit political, anyway. Um, and so a lot of the times, you know, we'll go in and you know, I've got a bat colony I've got gray-headed flying foxes uh, can be up to a thousand of them in the creek near my house And I love them They bless them But when they come at 3 in the morning in the tree outside my bedroom pff, That's why I don't own a gun. It really is, you know, and they do smell. I love the smell My wife puts the car and recirculate every time we go past a, a camp and I'm turning it off She's turning it on but you know they—they they also, you know, they do poop on your car. It's quite acidic. It damages the paint. The the nuisance value of bats, particularly of large flying foxes, is real. And when you've got communities in the um, South New South Wales coast where 10,000 of them move in to a town of with 200 people in it, the impact is tangible. Um, and so there needs to be some way of addressing that. Um, Using smoke bombs and choppers to move them on and then cutting their trees down, all that does is it moves the problem onto somebody else. It doesn't solve it at all. And it simply creates an additional stress to the bats. And it gets them to congregate in other communities. Um, in uh, this one New South Wales town, I can't remember the name of it just off the top of my head, some very, very intelligent um, consultants came in and simply suggested paying for carports and air conditioning, and proper windows for all of the people in the town, and it was going to cost less than moving the bats, and make the town more resilient to the bats when they came back, because they will come back when the eucalyptus starts flowering. I'm not sure if that actually happened. I need to follow up on whether anybody listened to them, or whether they moved them on, and I can't blame Campbell Newman for that. That was probably in the last two years, and it was in New South Wales. Um, So, This is another paper that came out really recently, um, and I wanted to have a chat about um, Australian bat lysovirus. Everyone knows about Australian bat okay? If you ever see a bat on the ground, don't pick it up. Um, Unless you really know what you're doing, um, and you've got your proper PPE, don't pick it up. There is a risk, and it's a real risk. To people, people have died. Um, It's really rare, and it's tremendously unlucky if it happens to you, but it has happened to people. So I'll just give you that warning. I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna downplay the risk that bats have in terms of human health, because it is real and it's real worldwide, but just know that the risk to you, if you are sensible, is zero. If you're not sensible, as with anything, the risk to you increases. So this is a study that's happened just recently in Western Australia. They went out and sampled all of these bats. I think it was 839 Bats across all of these species. Um, they took swabs and sera from them. Um, these big numbers here, these are the numbers of each bat species that they sampled that they got swabs from and sera, so sera being blood. The numbers in brackets afterwards are the number of individuals that they actually found antibodies to Australian bat lissavirus. So the proportions and the ranges are over here. I can get this to work. To give you an idea, 0.7 of a percent, 4.6, 4.5, 5.5. Overall, over all of these, the average prevalence of antibodies is about 2.9%. So it's not impossibly small, but it's relatively small. Now, the other thing to note about this is the presence of antibodies does not indicate that the bat has Australian bat virus. It simply means that at some point in the past, it was exposed to it, and it formed antibodies. It might not have it. It might have it and the only way really to know is post-mortem, um, which, you know, that's pretty drastic, and, and bless these people, they didn't bother to go and do that. Um, so the likely the prevalence is actually much actual prevalence of a strain of this virus um, is less than this. Um, so that's something to be um, uh, noted. Uh, to give you some indications about how low this number is, I've just come back from Belize, and part of the work we're doing is on rabies and vampire bats and how they move through the landscape and risk to humans and cattle. Um, And a colleague of mine, um, Dan Becker, from Indiana State University, has been doing the blood work, and last year, 15 to 20 percent of the vampire bats that we sampled had antibodies to rabies. Now, again, it doesn't mean they've got rabies. Very few of them will. But just to give you an idea about sort of relative antibody levels and risk, um... You know, gives you a sense that it's much, much lower. Ebola, good old Ebola. So everybody blames Ebola on bats. What we don't know, so Ebola keeps erupting. You know, it goes away, and then it comes back. And, some, and it's a terrible disease, and people die um, in large numbers. And the quicker we can get rid of Ebola, the better. But no one's ever found out where it erupts from. Where is its reservoir within the, within the wildlife It's very likely to be a mammal, but no one, there's been extensive studies looking for this reservoir, and no one's ever found it. I think it is likely to be bats, simply because of how the disease can move, and where it erupts from. It's got to be a fairly mobile species to be able to move um, around. But again, it's not proven yet. Um, But there's a number of papers that have come out which are just simply bad science. I'll take you through one of them, just to, inch up your skepticism level about it. and So you can understand why bats are getting this bad name, and it's simply from some appalling science. So this came out in the BBC. First Ebola boy likely infected by playing in bat trees. So this young lad was what they call patient zero. They have more or less proven that he was the very first person to get Ebola in one of the outbreaks, and they've traced it back to him. Poor young lad died from it, He was living in a fairly remote community, but of course his parents um, took him to the local town to get treated, and off it kicked from there. Um, So there's this paper that came out in a refereed scientific journal looking at the zoonotic origin of the West African Ebola um, epidemic. This is what the BBC said. Bat-filled tree may have been source of current Ebola outbreak. Ebola research team says migratory fruit bat responsible for outbreak. Largest ever outbreak of Ebola was triggered by a toddler's chance. Contact with a single infected bat, a team of international researchers will reveal. Sounds pretty convincing, doesn't it? You know, I first read it, I thought, Oh, I've got to read this paper. Um, First of all, and this is just me being a bat nerd, it wasn't a fruit bat, okay? When you look at it, it was this, okay? It's not a fruit bat. So skepticism inching up higher. So this is from the paper. No Ebola virus RNA was detected in any of the PCR-tested bat samples. So what happened was there was a tree in this village, and the kids would go and play in the tree. And there were bats in it, but they didn't care. They went and played in it. And the story was that the kids, this young toddler was playing in the tree, and he got Ebola, so it must be the bats. After he died, the villagers went and they set fire to the tree and killed all of the bats. Um, You can't really blame them for that. So then the scientists came in, and they were looking through the remains of the bats and trying to get samples to look for Ebola RNA to prove that the bats in there had it. So no Ebola RNA was detected in any of the PCR. So this is a test. Polymerase chain reaction tested bat samples. Okay. Just remembering. Okay. And... So no evidence of infection from bushmeat hunting and no decline in large mammals. So they went and looked through this area and there was no um, evidence of infection of that village or anyone in it from bushmeat, because that's another way that Ebola could be transferred, and no decline in local large mammals. The large mammals will die from Ebola as well. No indication that that was going on. No evidence of a virus in the local bat population. Children reported in the tree containing the species of bat Um, which other studies have shown serological evidence. So that's what they're saying uh, in the Sudan. So really, they're blaming this bat because in the Sudan, people had found Ebola RNA. Oh, that must be what's doing it. Oh, that's me being a nerd, it's not a fruit bat. So we'll add this to the evidence of scientific misconduct here. Um, And here's what they wrote at the end of the paper. So this is what they wrote early on, and this is what they wrote. Our findings support the idea that bats were the source of the current Ebola epidemic in West Africa and enlarge the list of plausible bat reservoirs to include now it's an insectivorous bat. So from this, we found no Ebola RNA to our conclusion that bats were the source of Ebola. And it's just bad science. And this got through a peer review in an international journal. So science does not always get this wrong. As I said, I think that Ebola is likely to be in bats. Uh, certainly there's been a- there has been antibodies found. There's been no actual virus found, only antibodies. But we know from rabies and Lyssavirus that that's an indication that it's likely to be in there. So I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying a lot of the hype that comes out, you need to be skeptical about it until you can actually see some really hard proof of what's going on. So, I'll give you a fit, what, what, how am I going? Oof. Um, some idea about what we're doing at QUT. Um, so I've only been there for about four and a half years, nearly five years, and so we've been building up a team doing bat research. A lot of bat research in Australia is actually done by government and local government, state government, and there's some really good stuff happening in New South Wales, Queensland, and Victoria. Bat research in universities is relatively rare. Um, There's some uh, small groups happening in the University of Queensland, they do some great work, Diana Fisher and a few others there. Melbourne is very good, they have an urban back group um, that does some really neat work as well, and a little bit through state government in Sydney, but generally it's done by government or it's done by consultants. Um, So we've been trying to build up a critical mass um, to do some really neat work on bats. So Anita Freudman, who's a PhD student of mine, um, her first love is these bats. This is Nick Tamini Robinsoni, the tube-nosed fruit bat. Um, and She studies those in North Queensland. They've got these little tubey noses and they move, move their nostrils around. Um, and she's been really interested in all sorts of aspects of how they move. And you can see this one has got an unnatural piece of metal coming off its back, which is the antenna of a GPS device. So what she's been interested in is looking at their roosting, looking at where they roost, um, their roosting behaviors, some really odd things coming out of that. What are they eating? So she's using molecular techniques to take the scats and actually put them through uh, molecular techniques to try and work out what plants they're eating. It's really difficult to do for plants. Looking at home range and things, and also looking at relatedness patterns. So looking at different populations from Cape York all the way through to northern New South Wales, which is their range, and seeing how they're related and the biogeographic patterns of them as well. And just in terms of the roosting, this is quite interesting, I don't have a diagram for it, but they're thought to be solitary, um, but they're not. You can find three or four of them roosting next to each other on a branch. And occasionally she would find um, two roosting right next to each other and you'd think they were related. You know, it might be a mother and a pup or something like that, but the genetics has come back that they're completely unrelated to one another. Um, so we've gone from solitary to these individuals roosting together who aren't, supposedly aren't related to one another, and we just have no explanation for it. Um, that'll have to be the next PhD student who's going to have to have a look at that. Um, we're waiting for the results to come back on the diet. Um, the relatedness patterns are really interesting um, because Nick DeMini's found up in Papua New Guinea as well, and then we get into the tropics of North Queensland down to New South Wales, and there seems to be this biogeographical gap just south of Brisbane that's separating off really where the, Sunshine, the Gold Coast group and the New South Wales group are grouped together. And then they seem to be a bit closer to the ones way up in the north. And what that means is they were likely isolated there by some biogeographical barrier. And we really had no idea about any of this. Um, this is one with a GPS tag on its back. And just to give you an idea, so this is um, up north. Here you've got some native rainforest and this is up near the Dane tree, and then you've got orchards out here as well. These are the boys, Um, so these are really just circles around their um, areas that they're moving, so they've got these core areas. You can see here the females are moving over much, much wider areas than the males. The males are tending to stick in one particular area, um, likely associated with, with where the females are. There's always one that's gonna do something different and go out over there. Um, But it's interesting to see how these are grouped together in terms of the timing as well, of when they move into these areas. They tend not to occupy these areas at the same time, and they'll sort of timeshare the areas as they move through. But they tend, you can see this is 500 meters, and except for the odd female that just goes whipping off 20 kilometers away, which doesn't fit in this diagram, they tend to stick in a certain area. Now, the interesting thing about this is it doesn't really explain a lot about the genetics that we see, about the relatedness of them up and down the North Queensland coast. You'd expect them to be a bit more isolated because they're not moving very far. But we actually show quite a lot of gene flow between them. We don't know why, but it's likely to be what we call male bias dispersal. So in mammals, males tend to be the species that disperses. In birds, it tends to be the female. So there's going to be the odd male that's going to leave and you know shed his genes Um, around the place, but we tend not to see that in northern New South Wales and the Gold Coast because there's this biogeographic barrier that exists. But she's gonna be handing in, in, fingers crossed, August, and so we should have this all sorted out um, by then. Um, Vanessa Gorecki is is a PhD student of mine. Um, She's worked as an environmental consultant for about the last 10 years. Um, She's always been fascinated by bats and roading infrastructure because she's done work for main roads and things and watched people dig up culverts and knock down bridges that they think they have bats in them. So she's doing a systematic study of the culverts in southeast Queensland, looking at where particularly myotis roosts, and trying to work out what the risk factors are from roading for the bats. Um, I'll give you a a sneak preview. It's whether or not they have um, lift holes in them. So when the culverts go in, there's lift holes. And if there's lift holes, you'll get myotis. If there's no lift holes, they won't, simply won't be there. Um, and some areas, they'll put these, uh, we, one we've just seen today is a wildlife crossing that's been put under the road as a culvert. Great idea, it's really well used. They sealed up the lift holes when they put it in. So it didn't hurt any bats, but they actually removed myotis habitat when they did it, thinking that they were doing the right thing. Um, so she's been doing that study for a year and a half now, is finding some pretty amazing things. So she wants to know basically who was in there. We thought there was a lot more species in there than it turns out to be. We thought rhinolophids, miniopterus, and myotis would be in there. Uh, It's mainly myotis. Um, How are they moving through the landscape and how are they related to one another? So do we get a lot of gene flow between them? What are they eating? And any impact of water pollution, so in terms of indicator species. Um, I think I left it in. Yeah, so this gives you an idea of the types of structures that they find themselves in and what she's finding in terms of the roost numbers. um, So uh, these are numbers that come up here, one, two, three, as you go down. But essentially they're in concrete culverts, circular and box culverts of large diameter. They tend not to be very fussy. What they care about is, is there a lift hole still in it? So it's where they actually attach the chains to the culvert to move it across and drop it into the road. So there's a hole cut in the top of the concrete. Then they put it in, and they'll cover it over, and it leaves this little hole that goes up inside. And they usually don't fill it in. And the bats just go up inside it into a small cavity. Um, this is some work that um, Catherine Jeffries did as honours. This is what I ta- was talking about water quality. So this is bat activity here, and species richness of bats. And this is the water quality index from zero to one. This is something that Healthy Waterways has been doing, and we use their data. Um, to do this, or our thanks to them. And what you can see is that bat activity, that's that black line, and the species richness increases as you get to better water quality. So rather than having to do insect sampling, it's certainly not as refined as insect sampling or chemical sampling. It's a bit of a blunt tool at the moment. But it gives you an indication, that, in fact, water quality can be, in, and uh, species richness um, indicates uh, the quality, so EPT riches is an in indication of insect abundance and insect diversity. So you can see that it increases with water quality. Um, so we're on our way as bats as indicators of this sort of ecosystem health stuff. Um, Chantal did her honors with me, and she did a really interesting study for Sunshine Coast Council, trying to predict what features of the habitat that the bats really go for. This is flying foxes, um, gray-headed, black, and little red flying foxes. And she produced a predictive model that looks like this. So this is the Sunshine Coast. And really, blue means that it's not suitable for the bats. As you get through to the red, it means it's suitable. And you can see these little patches of red. These yellow are known campsites or camps for them. And what this is being used for by the council is to identify areas where there's no bats, but it's suitable habitat. So they can actually go in and start to um, increase the quality of it and let the bats be able to move there. We also produce for them a conflict map. So if we know where the bats will go and we know that there are people nearby, we can map out where there's areas of potential conflict for them so they can control development in those sites and remove the problem of people getting bothered by bats and bats getting bothered by people. Um, So this is using a system called Maximum Entropy Modeling. It's a species distribution model, which it does produce some pretty spectacular results. What it also does is it tells us what the bats prefer And so, in this case, they prefer small, circumference, forest types. Prefer is probably a bit misleading. It's all that's left. So that's what they tend to be in. They tend to be lowland and coastal. Why? There's trees there, and there's water there. Interestingly, distance to food is not a predictor of where they are, because we think they have no choice about where they live. They don't get to choose to live near food anymore. They simply live where there are trees. Um, I've talked about this one. This is about looking at natural capital biodiversity on cotton farms, um, trying to look at whether bats and birds can indicate the quality of habitat that exists in cotton, and to provide farmers with quick feedback that when they take measures to improve biodiversity, they can actually see it happening. And this uses automatic, sort of uses artificial intelligence for acoustic monitoring um, in remote areas. Um, I'll do very quickly, because we're we're probably running a little bit late, Um, This is some work we do in Taiwan. This is the mountains of Taiwan, um, and we're interested in how bats can fly at three and a half thousand meters of altitude. It's the most energetically expensive thing an animal can do, and they can do it at three and a half thousand meters. Anybody here ever been up that high? Walking's really hard. Um, Going upstairs to bed takes 15 minutes, and you have gotta stop on the way up. It's really hard, and they're flying up there. So we're looking at their physiology. um, There's a group of us doing this work. Um, up in these mountains, um, which is a pretty spectacular place to work. Um, what else have we got? Vampire bat movement in Belize. This used to be old jungle. Um, the local farmers um, have cut it all down. I say local farmers, um, it's not the local Belizeans, it is the Mennonites who produce all of the food in Belize, and so they clear this land. This is an area called Kakabish, which is an unexcavated mine ruin, um, and therefore it's protected, and so that's why there's still forest there. And we're attaching GPS devices like this one to the back of these beautiful animals, vampire bats, um, to see how they move in these areas and look at rabies risk, um, gut microbes, because they're eating different types of food and things. was just got back from there. It was absolutely brilliant. We caught hundreds of bats. We put 15 GPS transmitters worth $6,000 on them, and the bats took them all off, and we never found them again. <laughs> We caught 10 of the 15 bats, and they had this beautifully cut fur on the back and the lovely shape of a GPS transmitter. So my next study is on glue, and the most effective glue. Um, And I'm 3D printing these things, so they're cheap, um, fake ones, and I'm gonna glue them on captive vampire bats in the US, because I'm not spending that sort of money. We just got a National Geographic grant to buy 30 more, and I'm not doing it until I know which glue is gonna work better. Um, this gives you an idea. This is a beautiful vampire bat here. Hopefully this video will play. They really are gorgeous animals. So this this one had some blood taken from it, from some swabs, but it doesn't have a GPS on it. Yeah. And notice the gloves. They have incredibly sharp teeth, and they have an anticoagulant in their... Um, in their saliva and you'll bleed for hours when they bite you. Their teeth are like scissors, they come together in these interlocking blades and yeah, it hurts and you bleed a lot and 15 to 20% of them have antibodies for rabies. So you wear big gloves. Um, but they are gorgeous animals. Whoops. Mysticina, um, I'll do this one very quickly. This is a, again another highly terrestrial bat found in New Zealand um, and we've been studying them for about 20 years, this is the native Woodrose, it's a a hollow parasite, and they're the only native pollinator of them. You can see this one with lots of pollen on its snout as well. Um, And we're doing some really neat work on this. These sing to females to attract them, and the current work we're looking at is to see whether the singing actually has a language to it. Um, And what we found is that the sequencing and the predominant notes they use actually make it not really a language, but very much like a song. So each male has a unique song in how that he produces and transitions his elements, which allows the female to identify individual males. Um, So we wouldn't say that it's a language, but it's certainly equivalent to what we see in birds when they sing as well. I will finish there. I'll finish just with some acknowledgements. We've gotten a lot of money, we've had a lot of partners and things, and if anybody has any questions, i would be really happy to answer them. Thank you.